listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley on Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast from the 12th of October. We marked 50 days until COP28 on the programme today with a look at the UAE's renewable energy mix. That is after the Emirates launched its first wind farms. And we asked whether wind power could be the answer to our eco-friendly energy demands. We were joined by the chief operating officer of Mazda. They're operating those farms here in the UAE. And we also got analysis from energy and renewables expert, Professor Klaus Weber. Meanwhile, a new study is warning AI or the AI industry could consume as much energy as a country the size of the Netherlands by 2027. We spoke to the author. And space scientists have finally got their hands on the rocky samples brought back from the asteroid Bennu. Do they show proof of alien life? We found out. Meanwhile, SpaceX is contesting a report that says their low-orbit internet satellites could cause a danger to humans on Earth. We'll be talking space junk with engineer Yusuf Farouk. And have you ever wanted to delete yourself online, that is? Well, citizens of California can now request that their personal data is deleted. And experts are saying the bill, known as the Delete Act, could be used as a model for privacy rights around the world. We got into the nitty gritty of that with tech lawyer Dino Wilkinson. Plus, the fabulous, ever-ready Chris McCarty joined us on the radio, head of sports. He gave us all the latest on the Cricket World Cup. We're going to take a look at renewable energy on the programme this morning. That is after the UAE launched its first wind farms in a bid to greenify its energy mix. Now, they're being run by the Abu Dhabi energy company, Mazda. Uh, They are well known for sort of investing in green energy projects, you know, including uh, solar farms. In fact, they've long invested in wind energy. They've actually helped build wind farms in the UK, including the world's largest, which is actually in London. Um, But now the company is looking closer to home. They're developing four wind farms, including one on Sabanias Island. Now, I was very interested when I heard about this because I had always thought that it wasn't windy enough here in the UAE to have wind farms. But clearly, all that has changed. So let's find out how and why. Joining me now uh, is the man in the know. It is Abdulaziz Alobadel. He is the Chief Operating Officer of Mazda. Abdulaziz, thank you so much for taking the time to join me on the line. How are you? I'm fine. Good morning and thank you as well for hosting us uh, to speak about uh, a unique uh, and uh, key market project like the UAE Wind Programme. Yeah, I have to say, I'm really intrigued by this. What is it that led Mazda to build the wind farm? And, and, and particularly because I didn't think the wind here was strong enough. Um, I think we shared the same uh, uh, view with you years ago. And thanks to the very visionary leadership of uh, the UAE, they've proven us wrong. And they've proven that uh, we have... Uh, wind resources in the UAE. Yet, of course, the wind resources in the UAE is not as fast uh, um, as, for example, some European countries. You've highlighted our project in the UK, the London area, where you have high wind speeds. Uh, however, the technology have advanced. 
Um, and uh, as again uh, a key developer and, and one of the fast growing uh, renewable energy companies in the world, we've been working with our partners as well as with the suppliers of equipment and monitoring the latest advancement in such technology. Um, and thanks to the advancement in the technology, we were, allow, we were, we were able to harness uh, lower wind speed and uh, produce electricity from wind in the UAE. This, of course, has a lot of advantage because it is adding one more source of clean energy to the energy mix in the UAE alongside solar as well as uh, nuclear. Um, so as you've highlighted, we installed uh, more than uh, or we installed 23 uh, wind turbine on four sites, uh, Serbarias Island, um, Delma Island and uh, Silla area in Abu Dhabi and also one uh, wind turbine generator in uh, Al Hala in uh, Fujairah. Yes, Well, I think you were probably just about to say it. How much power do you estimate that those wind turbines will create? So the total capacity for those 23 uh, wind turbines is 100 megawatt. And just to give you a context of what that that means, it's enough to provide 23,000 homes with their electricity. And also it helped in uh, avoiding 120,000 tonne of carbon dioxide emitted to the uh, atmosphere. So is there enough wind? Does that feel, I mean, obviously you guys will have done the ROI, you'll have looked at the return of investment, you'll have looked at the financial investment required. Is that enough power to make this project financially viable or is it more of a sort of pilot project for you? It, it is not really um, uh, a pilot project. Uh, the way we look at it is the start of uh, a commercial large scale or what we call the uh, utility scale of wind uh, projects in the UAE and hopefully in the region as well. Because through such a program, we are unlocking opportunities and we are showing and demonstrating to the world that harnessing wind energy in low wind speed regions is uh, very feasible. And the uh, second thing which is very important with the uh, wind energy in the UAE, it is a profile complementing the solar. While you are able to get the solar during the day, wind, especially here in the coastal areas in the UAE, start to pick up in noon and remains uh, high uh, until 8 uh, and, 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 and 9 uh, p.m which is, uh, as I highlighted, complementing to the uh, profile of solar energy, but also supporting the uh, system operators in um, uh, meeting the demand during peak hours. Of course, because that is one of the biggest complaints about uh, certain forms of renewable energy, such as solar or, or wind, that you don't necessarily have that consistency of supply. But if you tag team between the two, then obviously you're in a much stronger position. Are you already considering other possible spots for more wind farms, either here in the UAE, but also internationally? Sure. I mean, internationally, we are very active and we've already deployed projects uh, around the world. We continue to work with our partners uh, around uh, the world to develop for them projects. Uh, we even participate in the uh, uh, competitive tenders and provide competitive prices to develop wind projects around the world. Here in the UAE, we're certainly working with the key stakeholders such as Emirates, uh, uh, water and electricity company, Department of Energy, Ministry of Energy, 
to showcase the results of the, uh, the UAE won the program and support them in rolling out further projects uh, in the country. And again, I do believe that the UAE won the program is the start for commercializing wind energy uh, in the UAE. And going back to your previous question, um, the prices are very competitive, uh, returns of investment is very uh, promising, and hence we see the future for wind in the UAE. Would you ever consider building these wind farms in the sea? Because I know that that's one way of counteracting, you know, so it's basically so you don't have to use land uh, in order to build them. You can stick them out in the sea and they don't bother anyone. Sure. I mean, land is not an issue in the UAE. Um, and we've been blessed by uh, the vast and large desert. However, um, the offshore wind is completely different technology comparing to the onshore or on land uh, wind. Um, they look alike, they look like the same, but in terms of development, in terms of engineering, in terms of um, how you do it, uh, it's completely different. We certainly uh, exploring every opportunity and if we see feasibility, certainly we will consider that. So but at this stage, I think as a good start to commercialize the onshore wind is what we are focusing on here at the UAE. It is very exciting. And you mentioned there that, you know, there's lots of land here because we have the desert. We also have lots of sea. Um, Would you consider other forms of renewable energy that involves the sea? I I know that the the focus seems to be coming on tidal power a little bit more, but there hasn't been a great, there doesn't seem to really be a commercial use for that quite yet. Is that something that Mazda is researching? Well, we, we, are, we are a commercially driven entity and certainly if the technology proven to be commercially viable and the returns of investment is attractive for companies like us, we will consider today um, uh, the technology is still um, not mature enough comparing to solar energy, wind energy and other uh, advanced and mature uh, renewable energy technologies such as geothermal, for example. Um, so for, for now, we are not considering commercial project in the UAE. However, we continue to monitor the advancement in such technologies. And that's what allowed us to invest in the wind here in the UAE and develop the first uh, project, of course, is how we close, how close we are to the uh, technological advancement and to the institutions and suppliers and partners who are developing technology. Really interesting stuff, sir. Thank you very much indeed. Really fascinating. And I have to say, I think it was only about two years ago that I did an interview with somebody and I said, well, why aren't we doing wind farms? And they said, well, it just isn't viable. And and there you go, Mazdar proving uh, that it is uh, two years later. So thank you so much for your time. Uh, you've just been hearing from Abdulaziz Alobadli, who is the Chief Operating Officer for Mazda. Uh, sure to be a very busy man in the coming months with COP28 coming up. So thank you so much for your time, sir. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Right, coming up on the programme, we are going to continue our analysis of the viability of renewable powers. Very excited to say that I'll be welcoming Professor Klaus Weber onto the radio. He's from the Australian National University College and he is an energy and renewables expert. We're just going to get a bit of an overview uh, of the various sort of advances that are going on in the renewable energy sector. Of course, so important as uh, the world attempts to reduce its use of fossil fuels uh, and very interesting to hear there about how the wind farms have been working here in the UAE. I have to say I find wind farms really beautiful but I know that over in the United Kingdom there's all sorts of arguments and even time somebody wants to put one in a neighbourhood there's all sorts of arguments about them but, but I think they're gorgeous, I think they're elegant um, and uh, if they're making clean energy then all for the better. 
You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley on Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there. Good to have you with us here on The Agenda on your Thursday morning. We are taking a look at the viability of renewable energy on the programme today. That is after the UAE launched its first wind farms in a bid to greenify its energy mix. Now, we've just heard from Abdulaziz Alobedli. He is the chief operating officer of Mazda. Um, he was talking about the, the four wind farms that they've built, including one on Sabanias Island. And he suggested that now that the tech has got better, that even areas with sort of medium wind speeds, uh, they can that, that medium wind speed can be harnessed, whereas in the past it needed to be really quite sort of gusty. Um, so let's get some analysis on the efficacy of wind power. Is there something that we could genuinely see um, across the world, you know, specifically in countries, for example, that haven't even got a sort of secure fossil fuel basis, you know, instead of building uh, a coal powered station or or some sort of other power station, maybe you could have uh, wind power instead. So uh, to get some analysis on this, I'm joined by energy and renewables expert, Professor Klaus Weber. He is from the Australian National University and obviously joins me on Microsoft Teams. Uh, Professor, how are you? Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me on the show. It's good to be here. Yeah, I'm good. Thanks. I'm glad to hear it. Now, obviously, you've got this overview on renewables overall. Would you suggest that wind power is a viable, efficient option for providing power for communities? Um, Yes, definitely. Now, the extent to how much wind power will be employed will depend very much on the specifics of the location. But um, maybe just to give a, the example that I'm most familiar with, so if we're talking globally rather than a specific country, um, for example, in Australia, what we're going to have going forwards is a mix of wind and solar with probably about 50-50 or probably even a bit more wind than solar. And the reason for that is because while solar is very cheap, and really easy to predict what you're going to get on a kind of a longer-term basis. We do know that you're not generating at night. So during the nighttime, we don't get any energy from our solar panels. And also, um, if we are at a latitude which is, we're not close to the equator, then also in winter, we don't get so much solar power. And the nice thing about wind is that it can kind of complement that, and we get power from the wind at times when we don't get so much power from solar. So if you can combine the two, you can arrive at a really good optimum generally. Is it sort of cheaper to build wind farms rather than power stations, traditional power stations? Because I know that that is going to be a massive focus at this upcoming uh, UN Climate Summit, COP28 here in Dubai, is the idea that developing countries need to be brought along for the ride. They need to be helped to build power stations, whether those are eco-friendly or otherwise. And obviously, we're all hoping they're going to be eco-friendly. So so is it viable to, to build wind farms instead? Are they cheaper and as efficient yeah so it's really about cost so efficiency it's a difficult term it it depends how you define efficiency Um, but really what everybody cares about is how much is it going to cost us and um, that depends very much again it depends on how on the wind resource of course of the particular country but generally there are many regions around the world many countries that have a very good wind resource 
where it absolutely makes sense that it is cost effective to develop the resource and have wind energy as an important component of the overall energy mix. So I come from the United Kingdom, where as an overarching sort of view, people really don't like wind farms. They really don't like the turbines at all. Obviously, here in the UAE, lots of desert out there. We can stick them out there. They don't bother anyone. Um, what is it about these turbines that people don't like? What are the what are the criticisms for them? Yeah, look, I think it's it's a it's a, probably a range of things. Part of it might be cultural. We do have similar issues here in Australia as well. And, you know, look, I mean, some people just don't like them because obviously they are highly visible. They're not like solar panels, which are close to the ground. Generally, the higher up you go in the um, above ground level, the better the wind resource. And that is one reason why these turbines have been getting bigger and bigger. They're going higher up to access a better wind resource. Um, so they are highly visible and they change what the landscape looks like. There's no question about that. And so um, if you're used to, for example, a rural landscape, you'd like to look at rolling hills and all of a sudden you've got those hills with big towers on them. That might not be something that you like. Now, I think exactly how much that bothers you. There's been a lot of interesting studies on this, on the psychology of these things. And it's it's really one of the things that's clear is that it's really important to engage the community in the process of developing these wind farms and to do that from early on and to listen to the concerns that people have. And generally, when you do that and you, you actually take people seriously and you don't brush them aside, it's much easier to get buy-in for these things. So we're looking at... We're all desperately, and I think all the countries are, including the oil-producing nations like the one I'm in now, we're all trying to come up with cleverer ways of creating energy that doesn't involve burning fossil fuels, ultimately. But I know that solar power has become a lot more efficient, uh, you know, and there are robots that clean the dust off the solar panels. So, you know, that helps, you know, with uh, production levels. And I know that obviously now... Wind power, by the sound of it, has got more efficient as well, hence the ability of Mazda to build the wind towers here. Are there any other types of renewable energy that are being looked at? I'm obsessed with tidal power because I feel like the constant motion of the ocean surely can be utilised to to, to create some sort of electricity. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole range of um, kind of energy resources and technologies that we can use to exploit them. And so tidal power is one of them. Um, But I think what we will see in the end is that um, wind and solar, in particular solar panels or solar photovoltaics, are absolutely going to dominate. And that's just because they're the most ubiquitous. We have uh, most of these resources. And because we need to generate a lot of energy to replace fossil fuels, um, there's really not that many energy resources that can do that. Um, tidal is an interesting one. It is potentially quite useful in certain situations. One advantage that tidal has over wind and solar is that it's more predictable. Um, but on the other hand, there aren't that many geographical features around the world that are really amenable to the installation of tidal in a way that's cost competitive. So there's there are significant limitations on tidal as well as on a lot of the other possible possible technologies, for example, wave power. So that's another technology that's being developed. It's quite interesting. It might find some markets. But again, it's it's likely to be fairly limited. 
in overall application. Really interesting to hear from you there, sir. Thank you very much indeed. Professor Klaus Weber there. He's from the Australian National University. And it does sound indeed like the solar panels, such as the massive farm that has been built here, the Mohammed bin Rashid solar power farm out in the desert. It does sound like that is going to be the model for years to come around the world. Taking a look at a story that slightly boggles the mind, uh, of course, all linked with the fact that we've got this Dubai Assembly of Generative AI going on at the moment up in the Museum of the Future. Well, how about this headline? There is a new study out that suggests that artificial intelligence, or at least the industry itself, could consume as much energy as a country the size of the Netherlands by 2027. Now, the new study says that the AI-powered services use far more computer power than conventional applications, which I suppose, you know, makes perfect sense. A little earlier, I spoke to the author of that study, Alex de Vries. He's a PhD candidate at the VU Amsterdam School of Business and Economics. And he explained that he wanted to establish how much energy needs of AI were increasing as global use becomes more and more widespread. The thing that led me to look into this is the realisation that the servers that are being produced by companies such as NVIDIA, the AI servers, are power hogs in, in themselves. Each single server can consume as much power as more than a dozen UK households combined, and that's per server. So if the production starts sticking up, then also the electricity consumption related to all those servers is going to escalate quite rapidly. And that really triggered me to look into this. And then the second question is, uh, how do you look into this? Um, well, it's that's more tricky uh, because there's not much data to go with. But again, you can look at the supply chain of these machines, look at sales projections in the coming years, look at the supply chain capacity in the coming years and derive some expectations on how this electricity consumption related to AI may develop in the coming years in relation to that. We can actually expect that by 2027, we can expect the electricity consumption related to these new AI servers is going to be equivalent to a country such as my home country, the Netherlands, or a country like Argentina or Sweden, a a pretty substantial number, because by then it would represent half a percent of global electricity consumption, which is pretty big, especially compared to how data centers are performing uh, historically. In the past years, we saw that data centers have been responsible for Uh, 1% of global electricity consumption. So compared to that, we would be talking about a more than 50% increase. That is a serious increase. What is it about AI computers, AI servers, that makes them use so much more electricity than sort of traditional computational tasks? Well, the thing with AI is that in order to have a functioning and robust model, you need to feed it a lot of data and you need to build a model with a lot of parameters. And the interesting thing is that with AI, it's true that the bigger you make it, the better the model becomes. So there's a pretty big incentive to just keep adding more parameters to the models, keep adding more data, uh, because you end up with more robuster uh, results. And and that's why we have these really massive, large uh, language models that are being used for applications like JetGPT today. And we are talking about billions of parameters where they've been trained on a significant part of the internet itself.
it's huge. And, and that's why you need these really energy-hungry servers just to be able to process those quantities of data. But uh, in essence, it all originates from the fact that if you're building these models, bigger is better. The other interesting thing about these massive servers is that, of course, they get very hot when they're working, when they're processing. Does your research also account for cooling these servers? My research explicitly excludes the cooling because I'm looking at the supply chain of these machines. And one thing that we can't get from that is where these machines end up at. And that is a crucial factor to understanding how much cooling is going to be required. And if, if these servers are going to companies like Google, uh, then we know that Google is usually pretty efficient in cooling their servers. So hey, you would expect an additional maybe 10% in a, an extra electricity cost to keep the devices cool. But data centers globally on average uh, require an additional 50% to keep their machines cool. And that means that there are also cases where you sometimes you need more than 100% extra power just to keep the devices cool. And as long as you don't know where the machines are going to add up at, you can't say anything sensible about how much that is going to be, except the only thing you know is that those numbers can also add up uh, really quickly. What would be your recommendations off the back of all of this research that you've done? Do you think it's conceivable that you know people who are inventing these servers could create less power-hungry devices, for example? Uh, absolutely. I mean, there's lots of developments going on in this space. Uh, people are working to make the models more efficient. People are making working to make the hardware more efficient. But... The issue is that that doesn't necessarily lead to less use of resources. In fact, it can have the opposite effect. Uh, and that's something we have observed in a long history of technological change ever since uh, the economist Williams Jevons in 1865 established that making the production of coal more efficient actually led to an increased consumption of coal, which is now known as Jevons' paradox. Throughout the whole history of technological change, we observe this effect. You lower the cost of something, but you also increase the demand for a certain good or service. And you end up using even more of the resource than you were originally using. So that is something to be very mindful of because we're already seeing this happen in AI as well. And there are certain applications, especially in machine-assisted translating, where the costs have gone down recently because now machines, AI is doing the first iteration, but there's still people doing the second draft. And actually there's more people working in this type of job than ever before, simply because as the cost per instance went down, more people started demanding the service. And that's, yeah, kind of a guiding principle that should make you careful about being too optimistic about efficiency improvement. Alex de Vries there, author of that fascinating study that suggests that the AI industry could consume as much energy as a country the size of the Netherlands by 2027. Alex is a PhD candidate at the VU Amsterdam School of Business and Economics, speaking here on the agenda. Hello there. Welcome back to the agenda. And we're going to talk space now, which regular listeners will know is my favourite topic. Um, But this is a good one. The space community literally frothing with excitement over the opening of a space capsule containing samples of rock and dust from the asteroid Bennu. Um, 
Basically, the craft containing this dust landed safely in the US desert a couple of weeks ago. It had travelled for seven years. So you can imagine the certain level of enthusiasm when this thing lands safely in the desert. And now scientists have finally opened it up. Richard Dean described it as looking like a wok on the British breakfast this morning. And to be fair, it does. It did look like two sort of big woks stuck together. Um, but what's exciting is not what it looks like, but but you know what's inside it. And scientists have finally got their hands on some of that material. Now, if you're wondering why it's such a big deal, NASA, uh, you know, they really go out on a wing when they when they describe it. They say just a few grams of the sample will help us find out who we are, what we are, and where we came from. Some fairly Big questions there. Um, But how can that actually, you know, how can this space dust actually tell us so much? So let's find out. Uh, Joined on the line uh, by Dr. Helena Bates, who's a researcher in planetary science at the Natural History Museum in the United Kingdom. Uh, Now, one of Dr. Helena's colleagues, Dr. Ashley King, is in Texas right now analysing the materials. And I imagine the two of them have been speaking fairly regularly. So we're very luckily, uh, very lucky to have Dr. Helena join us on the line. Good morning to you. Uh, Tell me a bit more about what's been discussed in the capsule, uh, Helena. Yeah, well, so good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing, really. I mean, it's been such an exciting time these past few weeks, ever since the sample return capsule landed in Utah on the 24th of September. So what's happened is they moved it to um, to Houston in Texas. And as you say, uh, one of my colleagues is out there. So I'm constantly messaging, being like, give me updates, give me updates. Um, and what they opened the sample return capsule and they've actually, the sort of most exciting thing they found is what they've called sort of extra sample uh, because lots of material, or not lots of material, about 1.5 grams of material had escaped from the sample canister and has sort of it covered the entire of the in, of the inside of the return capsule in dust. So we actually haven't opened the science canister yet. We've just been looking at this dust that has been kind of coating the ex, the the inside of the sample return capsule, and that's what we've been looking at so far. So we've only kind of really scratched the surface of what these samples might hold. But it is, it's been the most exciting thing that's ever happened really in my career. I'm so I can't really believe it. Is the dust on the outside definitely from the asteroid? It's not sort of, you know, picked up from the desert when it landed? No. So the sample return capsule was sealed uh, when it landed. So and the dust is very much extraterrestrial. And there are tests we can do to confirm that it is extraterrestrial and not from Earth. Uh, And so, yes, we have confirmed that it is asteroid sample that is that has kind of escaped from the science canister. And we can actually see how that's happened, because in the past few days they have flipped the science canister over and they can see small uh, sort of centimeter sized rocks holding some of the sort of seals open um, on the science canister. We can actually see where that dust has escaped from. So we are 100% certain that this dust is extraterrestrial and not from Earth. Now, I know that you're looking for evidence of water, uh, but Mm -hmm. what else are you looking for and what's been found? So, yeah, you're exactly right. We're looking for evidence of water. Um, And the reason why that's exciting is because when Earth was forming, 
um, Earth actually formed in a very dry environment. It was it was quite close to the sun. The sun was pulling out, pushing out much more heat than it is now. Uh, and water just couldn't exist on the surface. And so water, we believe, might have come at a later stage in Earth's evolution. So it might have been delivered by body, extraterrestrial bodies that impacted Earth. And so what we're interested in doing is finding examples of the sort of bodies that might have done this. And Bennu, we believe, might have been one of these sorts of bodies. And so we're looking for evidence of water. And when I say water, I don't necessarily mean as ice or sort of droplets or anything like that. On, in in the sample, it's it's water molecules, so H2O, that is sort of trapped within the crystal structure of the rock. Um, and so we were also we were looking for water. We were also looking for evidence of organic molecules. So I've got to be careful when I say organic molecules. I do not mean life, um, but what I mean is carbon-bearing molecules. So we are made up of lots of carbon-bearing molecules, um, but some of those building blocks we we expected to see in the Bennu sample, and we have now found them. So these are molecules like amino acids and sort of very small um, carbon bonded to hydrogen molecules. So these are the building blocks. Of, we kind of describe it as a stock cube for life. So it's got water, it's got organic molecules in it, and it's got everything we need, really. That is very exciting. And, and, and okay, so... So in that way, this dust could indeed help us find out who we are and where we came from. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, so we we have we understand how life has evolved and we can look back in the past, but we don't know how life started and where the sort of ingredients for life came from. So we're hoping that the Bennu samples will actually, you know, could potentially be an answer to that question. They could tell us, well, these 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 materials came from an extraterrestrial source that landed on earth and then you know developed into a more complex life and so we need to do lots of study to work out exactly what organic molecules are inside this sample uh, and whether those things could you know combine to create something that looks vaguely lifelike uh, over time with the right sort of conditions on earth so it, they, they are right when NASA say we are hoping that Bennu solves some of these questions about our own origins uh, I think that Bennu samples might actually do it. So the next question is where do asteroids come from because if the asteroid helped bring life to earth where did mm-hmm. where did the asteroid come from? It's a very good question. So asteroids are basically rocky blocks that are orbiting the sun. And there are lots and lots of different types of asteroids. So uh, there are asteroids that formed quite close to Earth that are quite dry, so they don't contain water. But there are asteroids that formed really far out in the solar system, so sort of out beyond the orbit of Neptune. Uh, and there, when the asteroids were forming, these these rocky things that would eventually build into planets, um, they the, the temperatures were much cooler, so they could have water on them. And so asteroids are simply just what we believe the solar system was and planets were was built from. Um, but the asteroids that are currently in the solar system obviously didn't survive to become planets. But we have to remember there are a huge variety of different asteroid types, and only some of them are these water-bearing asteroids. So that's where they come from. They are basically these super primitive time capsules to the beginning of the solar system. And I know that some people want to mine asteroids. There are suggestions that, for example, they could contain all sorts of rare Earths, you know, the type that are currently being dug up on Earth at huge expense to put in our iPhones, for example. Mm -hmm. Do you think that that might be the next step for, for asteroid exploration? Or do you think, are the two projects just completely different? I mean, they're very much not, they are, they are part of the same kind of 
future of, of asteroid exploration. Um, asteroid mining is a very interesting topic. The way that I like to think about it is when you go for a very long drive, you don't take all the petrol you need with you uh, when you start that drive. You pick up petrol as you go along. So the, re the, the reason that I think that asteroid mining could be really, really valuable for future exploration is that they uh, that, that we can use those as sort of pit stops for spacecraft that go out into deeper space. So we send a, a spacecraft up into space, it lands on a nearby asteroid, it collects materials like water, like hydrogen, that it can convert into fuel, and then it uses that to sort of go on to do further exploration. The idea of bringing samples back, as you say, mining is, is of great expense on Earth. Uh, mining asteroids for precious metals and then bringing them back to Earth is, I think, slightly outside of our technological capability at the moment, just because it's really hard to send a spacecraft out uh, and it's even more difficult to bring it back, although, as we've proved, we have done it. Um, but to do that with something uh, with, with, with sort of precious metals, so to drilling on asteroids, I think is slightly outside of our technological capability but i definitely think that asteroid mining particularly to aid future and deeper uh, space exploration is a really really valuable thing to study it makes asteroids sound like petrol stations basically yeah 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 basically yeah Amazing. Uh, Dr. Helena Bates, thank you so much. Absolutely always fascinating to speak to you. And thank you so much for your time. As soon as more is discovered uh, and this capsule is properly opened, uh, no doubt we'll, we'll be calling you on you for another interview. But thank you so much for your time this morning. Really, really appreciate it. Dr. Helena Bates, their researcher in planetary science at the Natural History Museum in the United Kingdom. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Yes, listening to The Agenda. And there are a couple more space stories that I want to bring to your attention. They're making headlines. Uh, I mean, most of us now know that SpaceX, Elon Musk's company, is building a network of low orbit satellites above us. That's in order to provide internet in the most sort of remote of places. In fact, they provided it to Ukraine when, you know, their other systems were knocked out. Uh, also, in a slightly more mundane way, um, they now provide it for my mum, for example, who lives in deepest, darkest countryside in England. She couldn't get normal internet. Well, now for 400 uh, quid, which is about times five, about 2,000 dirhams a year, she can now get SpaceX Wi-Fi, which is huge for people living in the countryside in the United Kingdom. Um, meanwhile, Amazon are also planning to get in, in on this. They've just launched into space a pair of prototypes for their Project Cooper satellite internet system. Uh, get this, it's that, that, that pair they've just stuck up there is the first in a network of 3,236 satellites. And this is all in low orbit uh, now, basically. You know, there's, there's, I mean, SpaceX already has thousands up there. So it is getting a bit busy up there. Um, is there a risk to us? Uh, I mean, that is the big question. Um, let's find out. The Federal Aviation Administration in the US thinks it is a risk. They think those satellites could be dangerous for humans on Earth. In fact, they went as far as to say that every two years, one could injure or kill a human SpaceX really strongly refuting that. Let's get into the nitty gritty of it. Engineer Yusuf Farouk joins me on the line now. He's a space systems engineer at the CubeSat Laboratory at the Sharjah Academy for Astronomy, Space Sciences and Technology. Good morning to you, Yusuf. How are you? 
Hi, good morning, Georgia. It's a real pleasure to be back on the show again. Yeah, good to Especially have you. with an interesting topic. It's a smashing topic, isn't it? It really is fantastic. And I, and I find it very interesting because it could affect all of us. I mean, you're a space scientist. You know a lot about it. You know, you're a systems engineer. What do you think the chances are of one of these satellites either falling out of the sky and hitting us on the head or, you know, potentially crashing into something else? So honestly, when I read the news, I thought it's it's some kind of a joke. Uh, so the probabilities of this happening. So sometimes, you know, you read those statistics like you're more likely to die by a vending machine than winning the lottery, for example. It's one of those really, really, really low statistical odds that you just kind of ignore. And I think that that's how for now, for now, that's how we should treat it, especially with SpaceX uh, Starlink satellites. Those are considered really small satellites compared to the to their other counterparts. They're really small. They're in low Earth orbit. So it means that uh, they have a lifetime from five to 10 years, and then they're just going to re-enter the atmosphere. So what usually happens when satellites re-enter the atmosphere, they just burn up as engineers, regardless of how we design it. Of course, there are some designs that burn up better out in space. Meanwhile, other designs burn less. But I think with, Star- with Starlink satellites or with SpaceX satellites, uh, they usually just burn up. Uh, so I don't think it should be uh, an issue. Uh, from an engineering point of view. Okay, that is very reassuring. However, I've been looking at the statistics here, and as of August this year, there were 5,000 Starlink satellites up there, and they're planning to deploy 12,000 with a possible later extension of 42,000. Then you've got your your Amazon ones. At first, they're doing a network of 3,236. Now, I know that you know, that space isn't linear, you know, you've got a 3D, 4D, 3D, isn't it? Um, and there's quite a lot of there's quite a lot of space in space. But isn't it getting a bit busy in this sort of lobe orbit area around Earth? Yeah, that's that's right. So I, I would worry more about uh, space traffic uh, because collisions do happen in space and that increases space junk. Space debris is a real issue that we should worry about. I think space debris is more scary than satellites falling back and then hitting someone in the head or if you're so unlucky and you probably have a good car insurance it would just like land in your car or something so yes the space is getting real busy you we, countries now are starting to look at space as a natural resource this is something that we need to take care of because it's getting really busy and then we just don't throw satellites anywhere in the world so if i want a satellite that serves the united arab emirates for example in terms of communication there is some specific locations that are going to be the sweet spot that enable better communication so i think that it is a natural resource and countries should look at it as natural resource instead of just dumping thousands of satellites up there so so far we've only looked at the possible negatives of all these tiny satellites going up there. What are the positives? You know, as somebody in the industry, do you see these Starlink systems and and, and Amazon's uh, project Cooper um, as a positive? You know, as as something that's actually going to improve the lives of humans around the world. Of course. So when we usually think of a project, we always think about the positives and the negatives. And of course, before we started, we need to think of the positives. So first of all, satellite internet provides internet to remote access areas, uh, whether you're in the in sub-Saharan deserts, whether you're in remote areas in the UK, as you mentioned earlier, you're still getting high-speed internet. You don't have to rely on the power grid. You don't have to rely on cabling that was already there. So that's that's a big positive. You're enabling internet access to everyone in the world. So people in Africa can probably you know watch YouTube, helps with education, food security. So there's a ton of applications where space internet is really beneficial. 
And then one of the other benefits of small satellites, uh, I know it looks scary that we're just keeping thousands of them up in, in space. But then so you have to keep in mind that they just decay. They have like five to 10 years and then they just fall back and they burn up in the atmosphere and like as if they never existed. That has been a really like it's an amazing approach that the satellite industry has been taking. And instead of building those big satellites that stay forever in space, and it's it's really hard for them to deorbit. It takes a lot of time for them to deorbit. So we just build tiny, tiny ones that then just deorbit and burn up, and then we can focus on more projects. So I think it's it's a net positive to to the global, uh, you know, space provider industry or. I mean, in a global perspective. Yeah, I mean, it's good to get that sort of international uh, eye, international lens on on what these actual systems will, you know, contribute to the world. Uh, so you don't think there's too many negatives? You think it's going to be okay? I think I think it's going to be okay as long as they just burn up in the atmosphere. I think it's 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 going to be okay because technology keeps changing. Like I, I would ask you this question: Would I build this really big system? that has like, you know, slow internet because, you know, technology keeps changing. Like if you look at 10 years back uh, or 20 years back, you could have never imagined the iPhone or 5G internet or internet that was so fast. So if we build those big systems, those take up a lot of time to build. And by the time we send them up in space, we already have a ton of newer technologies up there that enable faster internet. So we just keep sending those small ones. They take shorter time to develop. Uh, the technology is most likely up to date. And then, you know, in the next five years, they're just going to land back, burn up, and then we can send in the other one, which has, a you know, better advanced features. So I think it's a, it's a net positive overall. Engineer Yusuf Farouk, a space systems engineer at the CubeSat Laboratory at the Sharjah Academy for Astronomy, Space Sciences and Technology. Thank you very, very much indeed for your insights and analysis there. Great to get you on the radio uh, once again. And, and I don't, we're going to put the video up of your um, interview because in the background uh, at, the, at the laboratory, you have the coolest light I've ever seen. Is that from the base of a space rocket? Well, it's 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 one of the gimmicks at the office. Maybe you should pay uh, the Charger Academy a visit. We've got a ton of them, so uh, they're very you should, cool. You should consider. They look yeah. very cool. I'll stick a picture up on our social media so you know what we're talking about. But yeah, Engineer Yusuf, thank you very much indeed for your time. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is the Agenda on Dubai Eye one hundred three point eight. Hello there. Welcome back to the Agenda. Georgia here. But first, I have a question for you. Do you wear a fitness tracker on your wrist? Uh, do you input your health data into an app, for example? Uh, and do you have cookies on your internet browser? I think that probably covers everyone, doesn't it? I think most of us have at least one of those things. Well, in a victory for privacy advocates and consumers, citizens of California can now request that that personal data can be deleted from the coffers of all the data brokers in the state. Now, experts are saying that the bill, which is known as the Delete Act, could be used as a model for privacy rights around the world. Now, I want to discuss that and also compare it to what the protections are here in the UAE already. We know that the UAE likes to be at the forefront of sort of uh, digital elements, anything digital, to be honest, uh, hence the 
the assembly on generative AI that's going on at the Museum of the Future at the moment. Hence, Jitex next week, uh, which, of course, is the uh, probably the biggest tech uh, community, well, tech event in the world, I think it is now. Um, so, yeah, let's find out a little bit more about that. Lawyer Dino Wilkinson, partner in technology, media and telecommunications for Clyde & Co., joins me in the studio. Dino, great pleasure to speak to you again. How are you? I'm good, thanks, Georgia. How are you? I am very well indeed. Thank you for asking. No doubt after next week, after Jitex, I'll be slightly exhausted, <laughs> but we are pushing on through for this week for sure. Um, what do you think, what was your reaction when you read about this law? Because certainly I read about it in the Guardian newspaper, quite a left-wing publication, as you can imagine, the writers there praising it to the rafters, saying it's, they're very enthusiastic about it. What would be your reaction? Yeah, I, I think I can see why. I mean, it's a very much a, a pro-consumer law, um, this idea that um, uh, you should be able to request the right to delete information. And, and that right does exist in other laws. So if we look in Europe, this kind of concept of the right to be forgotten has been there for, for some time. Um, but it's a right that normally you'd have to go to a an individual company and say, can you please delete my data? And then they consider that request and there's exceptions to that right. What California has done is said, uh, we want to make that easier for company for individuals who are um, whose data is held by these the so-called data brokers, so companies that collect and share data but don't necessarily have a, a direct relationship with them. Uh, and they want it's the I think the the innovation here is that California is trying to create this sort of one-stop shop, so you can go if you're a California resident to the regulator and say, ask all of the data brokers to stop. Uh, using my data, and so with one um, push of one button, effectively you can um, you can sort of wipe yourself out. Why uh, would you want to do that? Um, why would you be worried about it? I mean, maybe my imagination just isn't dark enough. Um, I think people are getting increasingly concerned about how their personal information is used. I think we've we've kind of um, you know the last um, you know decade or so, we, you know, technology has emerged. Uh, and is starting to use data, you know, and has collected data about us, and that's continuing to happen. And I think people are getting a bit concerned now. It's actually, you know, how much of me is out there, what information is out there, and what are people are using it for, and, and who's making money off from, from my data. Um, so it's about giving back control. It's about respecting people's rights to privacy, um, and and allowing individuals to to have some say in how their data is handled. And is this quite? new for the United States, or do they already have laws dealing with, with privacy? Um, so uh, perhaps unusually, I mean, people might think that, that there should be a, a sort of national uh, or a federal um, privacy law in, in the US, but there isn't. And so it's quite a patchwork of different laws. Um, the, the, the delete act that we're talking about here is just uh, for California, the state of California. We're obviously, you know, with a lot of tech companies there, they have very much tech focused laws. But there, there's laws covering different sectors, different groups of people like children, um, you know, different types of data like medical data. So there's quite a mix of things that you have to look at in terms of US law. But what they're trying to do and what I guess what governments around the world are trying to, to do is to pull together um, all of these regulations. Um, and it's what we're trying to do here in the UAE with a, a sort of an incoming data protection law as well. Oh, that's interesting. So we don't have anything at the moment protecting our data here. Uh, not specifically. I mean, there are protections for certain privacy rights and confidentiality rights in the law. Um, and there is actually a data protection law on the books, but it's not yet fully effective. So we're waiting for 
a new regulator to be set up, um, hopefully soon. Uh, we're waiting for what's called the implementing regulations, which are basically the rules as to how the law will work. They will give us a bit more um, detail on the law. But but it's there. There is a framework. It does also include this kind of right to be forgotten as well in the UAE law, subject to certain exceptions. But um, we're still waiting to see that come in and take full effect. That's really interesting that, that it's coming soon, though. You sort of get a sense that, you know, California is, well, the, the various countries, various states are sort of catching up with this new uh, market effectively, isn't it? I mean, data is used, this type of data on mass is used by advertisers. It's used by, um, I mean, anyone who wants to tell you anything pretty much. And, and also big data is used to profile populations, isn't it? And look at things like I don't know what what illnesses are more likely among certain communities. Exactly, and so so there are some exceptions. This right to be forgotten. If it's if the data is being used for public health pur- purposes, for example, or if it's being used in a criminal investigation, then you can't say delete my data because that would um, sort of uh, you know not not be a good thing. So there are exceptions, and there there obviously are, are good reasons to process certain types of ter- um, personal data. Um, and, you know, I, I think some of the concern, there has been some controversy in, in California about this this delete act, uh, looking at those sorts of angles, saying there are, you know, there are small businesses that rely on um, agencies to provide them with data to help them to, to target consumers. And if they don't have that ability, they'll have to spend more money on different types of marketing. Um, there's the sort of security angle and the health angle. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of this, you know, data brokers will often... Uh, you know, their customers will include, um, let's say, charities uh, or non-profit organizations who, who are trying to target volunteers. So there is a risk that some of that gets cut off. Um, uh, but, you know, I think that there's always this balance when, when new laws are brought in, you know, of the, you know, what they're trying to achieve against you know, perhaps some unintended consequences as well. So what should you do right now if you're a UAE citizen? And and there's a couple of questions, I suppose. There's something online that you'd like to be taken down. Or secondarily, you know, you're worried that your Fitbit, for example, your Apple Watch is is sort of storing all of your data and sharing it with people that you don't want them to. Yeah, Um, I think there are a lot of self-help remedies now. So if if you want uh, information taken down, if you want to change... Um, settings about you know how much data is shared. Um, most of the sort of you know the big apps and uh, social media sites will have either a, a mechanism where you can report something and, and initiate a process to take information down, um, or you can you know delete your profiles. Um, but also you can you know you can change settings in terms of how much information you share. And I think um, I think the public is getting better at recognizing you know when data may be shared. Um, uh, yeah, nobody really wants to read a privacy policy. I, I write them and I don't read them myself. Um, <laughs> but I think taking a bit more notice, I think that that kind of idea that, well, I didn't know and I just clicked yes um, is, is kind of perhaps perhaps we need to shift that a little bit and say, actually, well, what am I doing here? And, you know, th- there's the, the sort of old adage of you, you, you don't get something for nothing. Um, and most of the times, if there's something free on the Internet, they'll be collecting something from you in exchange, uh, usually data. So um, think about what you're doing on the Internet, where your footprint's going, what information you are sharing, um, and whether you'd be comfortable with that data being, you know, released or shared. Um, you know, it's, it's usually there. A, a key principle of all data privacy laws around the world is transparency. So companies should be telling you what to do. It's in the new data, the UA data protection law as well. So when that comes into force, companies should be telling you we're doing this with your data, we're sending it here, we're sharing it with these people. Um, and I think people just need to take a bit more ownership of, of that.
Yeah, you need to go into that settings section on the iPhone and opt out of a few things, I think. That's probably the answer. Uh, Dino Wilkinson, as always, lovely and clear. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Thanks for coming into the studio. It's been great to have you here. Thank you. Thank you very much. Dino Wilkinson there, partner in technology, media and telecommunications for Clyde & Co. Reminding us all to read the privacy notices. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Sports time here on The Agenda, joined on the line by the very fabulous Chris McCarty, head of sport for Dubai Eye. And we're going to start, Chris, with the Cricket World Cup because there was a bit of a statement from India yesterday, wasn't there? Yeah, very good morning to you, Georgia. Uh, you're right. You're absolutely spot on to say that India, having beaten Australia in a kind of gritty manner over the weekend, uh, yesterday it was all about the flair, it was all about the panache. Uh, Afghanistan, their next victims in this Cricket World Cup. Of course, India, the host nation, Delhi, the stadium was absolutely jam-packed and they were treated to an exhibition yesterday. They limited Afghanistan did India, and then they had a little problem in chasing it down. Rohit Sharma, fantastic, a fantastic century from him. He was ably assisted by Kishan, and then Virat Kohli just sprinkling a little magic dust towards the end. It's two wins from two. We've been seeing it before this Cricket World Cup has started. We're seeing it now after the first week or so. They are undoubtedly the team to beat. Whoever beats India in this World Cup, I think will be champions. Very exciting stuff, the Cricket World Cup, keeping everyone entertained. We've got another big match today, haven't we? Yeah, we certainly do. This is a cracker, a a real good one for the cricketing aficionados out there. You don't have to be a fan of either Australia or South Africa to enjoy this one. Two absolute behemoths of the cricketing world. Australia, of course, still smarting from that defeat to India, South Africa. Well, they're coming bouncing into this one, that 428 score against Sri Lanka and their opener. That's the biggest score in Cricket World Cup history. Throw in the fact that Aidan Markram scored the biggest score that we've seen in Cricket World Cup history as well. Uh, they are a side full of confidence. They've got a bowling attack to match the explosiveness of their batters. I think this is a real good game today. And I think, i to say this, all the pressure on the Aussies coming off the back of that defeat to India. They need a performance. More than that, they need a victory. It should be a cracker. Gets underway at 12.30 today. Right, let's look ahead to tonight as well. We have Euro 2024 qualifiers and you are going to be staying up, aren't you? Because Scotland's in action. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to be uh, missing my bedtime slot tonight, I think, because you're absolutely right. Scotland are over in Spain. You might remember this, Georgia, or you probably will not, but Scotland beat Spain in the reverse fixture in Euro 2024 qualifying earlier this year. So they're coming into this one with a lot of confidence. They topped the group to Scotland. They've had a wonderful campaign. They're on the cusp of reaching uh, the tournament next summer over in Germany, and we're expecting a performance. Not often I say this, but Scotland go to Spain expectant tonight. Might not get the result I think they'll produce a performance. Spain have yet to really hit their stride. Okay, they smashed Georgia in their last match, but they are still a little fallible, in my opinion, are Spain. So, yeah, really looking forward to this one. Scotland looking to get the job done a little later tonight. Chris McCarty, thank you very much indeed. It's a pleasure to have you join us on the radio. Good luck for later on today when you will be on Off Script with Robbie and Sonal from 5pm. It is your drive time show all the way through until 8 o'clock. A great lesson, so make sure you tune in then. But yep, Chris McCarty, thank you very much indeed for your time today. The Agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am till 1pm.